Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The effort to shut down the so-called puppy mill pipeline in New York has reached the governor's office. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. Elected officials joined activists Monday, delivering thousands of postcards from shelter advocates and supporters across the state, calling on Governor Kathy Hochul to sign New York's puppy mill pipeline legislation. It would ban the sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits in pet stores. Supporters of the legislation say many of the animals bred in mills suffer from pre-existing medical conditions that ultimately result in their eventual owners spending thousands of dollars in veterinary care. Libby Post, a frequent panelist on WAMC's Roundtable program, represents the New York State Animal Protection Federation. The $123.6 billion spent on pets in the U.S., less than 2% comes from the sale of puppies, kittens, and rabbits. This bill, the Puppy Mill Pipeline Bill, is an opportunity for those pet stores to rebrand as humane businesses. New York can no longer afford to be complicit in animal abuse, and as long as we allow puppy mills to bring their product into the state, the Empire State is guilty of abuse. The overwhelming support from both sides of the aisle for this bill shows that the last bastion of nonpartisanship is puppies and kittens. 108th District Assemblyman John McDonald, a Democrat, says the bill, which passed by a wide bipartisan margin, is now on Governor Hochul's desk. He notes it addresses an issue that most people don't recognize when they purchase an animal at a pet store. There are commercial breeders out there that have inhumane conditions as they breed these animals. Um, sometimes, you know, having the mothers repeatedly go through cycles of birth, which is unhealthy. Uh, the storage and transport conditions of these animals is inconceivable. It's, it's just inhumane. And uh, the reality is, is that if you look at some of the larger pet stores and even some of the smaller ones, they've gotten away from the business of selling the animals. What, where the meat of their business is, 98%, is in regards to all the supplies. And I can tell you very candidly, people who own dogs and cats and puppies, they spend a lot of money taking care of their animals, and that's where their real business is. Mike Bober is president and CEO of the Pet Advocacy Network. The reality is only about 4% of dogs that go into people's homes every years every year come from pet stores. That's not a pipeline. That's more of a garden hose. Uh, we, we believe that there are absolutely steps that could be taken to improve animal well-being at the national level. Uh, but a ban on the sale of dogs and cats in pet stores in New York is not going to do that. What it's going to do instead is it's going to put a lot of small local businesses and their employees uh, out of a job. McDonald urges anyone who wants a pet to consider adopting one through shelters such as the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society. And if you're looking for an animal, looking for a pet, the Humane Society is where you're going to get a, a great opportunity to get a, you know, a quality dog, um, but also, just as importantly, a healthy dog. Now, there are still small breeders out there that will be able to 
um, be able to you'll be able to buy a dog from there. But the truth of the matter is, uh, the commercial process is just not appropriate. I mean, you're talking about man's and woman's best friend um, being sold as a commodity when it's really not. It's their best friend. Post says the pandemic, its aftermath, and economic factors are forcing many people to give up their pets. All the shelters across the state are packed to the gills. And instead of going out and buying a $4,500 designer, what's that puppy in the window dog, right? Why don't we just go to the shelters, go to the rescues, and adopt a dog? This bill won't prevent anyone to go to a a responsible breeder if they want a specific breed. This bill does not do that. What this bill does is stop this flow of puppies from puppy mills in the Midwest. A spokesman for Governor Hochul tells WAMC the Democrat is reviewing the legislation. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Well, Alan, the conversation, always interesting, with Yancey Roy. He's the Albany Bureau Chief for Newsday. He knows his politics in New York State. And you've opened the conversation about the Democratic and Republican strategies, really, that are being used in New York, with the Democrats leaning on the abortion decision, Roe v. Wade being thrown out, of course, as well as the January 6th election deniers. Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate in New York, did not vote to certify Biden for the election, so they're using that as well. And the Republicans are using inflation and the economy and crime, uptick in crime. Of course, New York is a heavy blue state. Which one wins? Well, I was about to say that, David, before you mentioned that New York is a blue state, because it is. It's a democratic state, and it's getting more and more so. So therefore, you can pretty well look at and assess what's happening based on the position in the state of the blue Democrats and the red Republicans. These folks are playing the hands that they were dealt. And you can pretty well decide what's going to happen based on what cards are being held by both political parties. In the case of New York, it is a democratic state. Now, upstate may have some Republicans in it or even Republican majorities in a few places. But when you look at the totality of it, the Democrats are pretty well in control. How do we know? Well, we see a Democratic Assembly, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic governor. And therefore, you could pretty well make assessments as to what's going to happen as all of this unfolds. Yeah, and Yancey Roy and you were talking about the fact that Lee Zeldin, while popular on Long Island and well-known, is not well-known across the state. That's a big deal in statewide elections if you don't have name recognition. And right now, Hochul has the advertising edge. Well, look, Hochul is the governor. Hochul's going to be the governor. The Republicans don't have a lot going for them. Look, we have had Republican governors, Pataki and others, in this state when the Democrats get too greedy 
when they put up bad candidates. So that's always a possibility that that's going to happen. But right now, the Democrats are pretty well in control of New York State. Well, the emergency powers were let go this week by Governor Hochul, been a subject of criticism, not only from Republicans and Democrats. They were first acquired during the pandemic by former Governor Andrew Cuomo, and Hochul kept them when she took over as a precaution, they say, the administration, because COVID is still around. And they were worried about a surge coming this fall and what might happen. But now some of those restrictions have been lessened and she foregoes the powers. Right move? Well, I don't know. Uh, If things go well, it's the right move. If things go badly, it's the wrong move. And she'll be held responsible for that. Look, things are not good when you have the potential for mass illness and other things that will come when you are not prepared. I don't know whether or not this will turn out well. But, you know, the options aren't that many, and she'll do what she has to do. How about the fact that polio is back in New York, Alan? This is almost unconscionable that something that we thought was wiped out because of vaccination is back. It's not only back, but the governor has a statewide health emergency, basically, because of it. And we're living in an age where it's hard to believe that something like this could happen. You know, I'm a fairly old guy now. I don't know how that happened, but it did. And I do remember (laughs) all the polio shots and my mother taking my twin brother, Louis, and I to get various protections. So, look, these things come around. And if you're not careful, they come around more. We can have health emergencies in New York State, and we know that. We've we've had them. We're going to have them. It really is important that you have the right people running things. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New Congressman Pat Ryan took his seat to represent the 19th District this week. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus with more. Ryan was joined by his family as he was sworn in by Speaker Nancy Pelosi as one of the newest members of Congress Tuesday evening. He defeated Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro in last month's special election to replace now Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado. Ryan addressed lawmakers back from the August recess. I can see my wife, Rebecca, and our two young boys, Theo and Cameron. Theo's clapping. Good job, buddy. They're extremely well-behaved tonight, and for that, we are greatly appreciative. They're three and nine months old. They're too young, three years. Uh, They're too young to fully appreciate the significance of this day and this moment, but I cannot wait to explain to them the immense pride I feel standing here before you, with you, my distinguished colleagues, humbly representing my community. 
This is a moment of immense consequence and challenge for our country. I truly believe it is an all-hands-on-deck moment for our democracy. Ryan, who is also running in November's general election in the new 18th district, will serve the rest of the year in Congress. He stepped down as Ulster County Executive to take on the new role. Along with his first floor speech, Ryan announced the opening of a district office on Clinton Avenue in Kingston, in addition to his new Washington office in the Longworth Building. So far, his member homepage is still in transition. Ryan says an early top priority will be launching a district-wide listening tour. He has used his public appearances since the bellwether election to echo campaign themes about the state of the nation. This is a moment of immense consequence and challenge for our country. I truly believe it is an all-hands-on-deck moment for our democracy. And I pledge that I will fight every single day with every ounce of my being to deliver for the great people of New York's 19th district and to renew trust and faith in our nation. Ryan faces Republican Assemblyman Colin Schmidt in November's race for the 18th district. Also sworn in Tuesday was Republican Joe Sempolinski from New York's current 23rd district. Meantime, former New York State Senator Jen Metzger landed Ryan's endorsement as she runs to succeed him as Ulster County Executive. Metzger, Deputy Ulster County Executive Mark Ryder, and Ulster County Comptroller March Gallagher are campaigning to serve the rest of Ryan's term, which runs through 2023. Democrats are scheduled to gather Saturday in Kingston to back a candidate in the special election. Republicans have not put forward a candidate yet. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ian Pickus. Democrat Matt Costelli, meanwhile, has released a platform for a new political party as he challenges Northern New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik in November. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley has more. Castelli is a former CIA officer and National Security Council counterterrorism director who is challenging Stefanik, the number three House Republican in New York's 21st district. In June, Castelli's campaign created the Moderate Party, which will appear with his name on the November ballot. Castelli said they created the party so voters would be familiar with his stances, but it has become more than that. It's become a home for a large number of voters across party lines who right now are experiencing a sense of political homelessness. The moderate party is reclaiming a powerful voice for the great middle majority. Castelli says the party platform is based on three pillars, the first being safety and security. The moderate party will increase funding for law enforcement and give them the resources and trust they need to keep our families and communities safe. Our security is not just about public safety and national security. We're going to improve access and affordability of health care, mental health and elder care, especially for our veterans and our seniors, and especially in our rural communities. The second pillar is a strong economy. Castelli notes that the national debt is reaching unprecedented levels and says fiscal responsibility must be restored. Both parties are to blame in recent decades for their fiscal irresponsibility we need to rein in government spending and take steps to balance the budget and reduce the national debt. We must eliminate inefficiency, fraud, and waste in government programs. If the government is going to spend our hard-earned resources, then that spending must keep us safe 
grow the economy, or protect and strengthen vital programs like Medicare and Social Security. The third pillar focuses on freedom and liberty. Castelli emphasized that as a gun owner, he will protect the Second Amendment, an issue Stefanik often speaks about in the Republican-leaning 21st District. We support common-sense measures like universal background checks to keep our cops, our kids, and our communities safe from gun violence while protecting the rights of law-abiding gun owners. We do not support an ill-defined assault weapons ban that fails to address keeping our cops, our kids, and communities safe. We are going to protect personal rights and individual liberty. Overall, Costelli says he sees the moderate party as a fusion organization. Many Democrats, independents, Republicans helped us establish this uh, moderate party. And so these values reflect the values of Democrats here in New York 21. They also reflect the values of many independents and Republicans in New York 21 that don't feel that they have a voice in those extreme factions of either the Republican or the Democratic Party that they may otherwise identify. In an emailed statement responding to Castelli's moderate party platform, Congresswoman Stefanik's campaign said he is, quote, masquerading as a moderate, unquote. Senior advisor Alex DeGrasse notes that Stefanik has been endorsed by every law enforcement union in the district. The campaign also criticized New York's bail reforms and claims, quote, Castelli has embraced Democrats' bail reform and is only trying to desperately hide his radical views, unquote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A recent study led by researchers at the University at Albany finds that exposure to sustained sunny, hot and humid weather can trigger and increase symptoms of mental health disorders. The study compared data from the New York State Mesonet, a network of weather stations across the state, with hospital emergency visits. The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with Xiao Lin the study's senior author and a professor at UAlbany's School of Public Health. This uh, probably is the first study uh, in the nation to look at the multiple factors um, on mental health problems. So the, um, the major finding, the first thing is like we found the sun radiation and relative humidity. So the highest increase for mental health risk. And the second findings, we found uh, temperature uh, had a short-term effect. And heat index also has seen increase the risk, but the risk is less. It lasts the whole week long. And we also found the rainfall duration had an inverse effect, just like the longer duration and has like a shorten the lower risk. And another important finding is we found like some radiation, relative humidity, high temperature and 
key index. Uh, the effects also show up in the in September and October, so it's out of summer. So we call the transitional month effect. And those effects and um, it show up for all these like uh, weather factors. And we also found uh, the joy effect among some radiation, relative humidity, and high temperature had the highest risk on mental health problems. Finally, we found uh, some of the subtypes of mental health problems, such as psychoactive substance use, and also mood disorder and adult behavior disorders had a, a significant increase after the heat exposure. Do we know why this sustained heat, sustained humidity, sustained uh, high levels of, of sun radiation cause this type of response across these these disorders? Yeah, I think it's a biological uh, a possible. So as we indicate in our paper, so it's like some of the hormones change that, um, because the heat can change the people's the hormones level, like, like dopamine and also some other hormone change, so which also affect the people's reaction to heat. So that can cause the mental health problems. You know, looking at, at these findings you mentioned, um, it, it might be the first study in the nation to look at this link. How might healthcare, government, public safety leaders use these findings? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, we, what we can do is like for this finding, first thing um, I want to just like tell the government and the healthcare worker is like uh, we should look at all the uh, weather factors, joy effects, so not just look at temperature alone. So we look at some radiation, humidity, because there are joy effects uh, between the, the higher sun radiation, uh, the high humidity, and also temperature is the strongest. So it's much stronger joy effect than the single um, fetus effect. So uh, on those days, have all these things is very high. So um, I think the, the healthcare um, workers or the doctors should be, or the, or the policymakers should think about probably the mental health pa patients should be pay more attention to because they saw the highest risk. Another thing is like those effects not just show up in a typical summer. We also found that effects also show up in the transitional month in September, October. Yeah, especially uh, some of the other effects for some radiation and humidity effects stronger in September than in the typical summer, which means or which imply the, the early warning or the warning in out of summer should be very important. So right now, we're we only doing the warning in the summertime, the typical summer, but uh, it's not in the transitional month. So we encourage policymakers to do the early warning or the late warning in after the summer for that. Yeah, another thing, uh, the third important thing um, would be helpful is that we identify the threshold for each of these risk factors in our papers, which will be important for the uh, policymaker like the health department to use this threshold. So when those uh, temperature or humidity or some radiation reach the threshold, we, we should expect there's an increased risk for like the mental health ED visit.
And my my final question, you know, I'm not sure if there there was a, a look at this, but I know your study found that there was an associated increase in some forms of violence when temperatures were at their highest. Might this partially explain why there tends to be more violence, uh, such as, you know, instances like, like shootings in the summer months? Yeah, I think this is the uh, the, the the reason we think of yeah we we typically find like the substance abuse and the, some of the violence increase in in the summer months due to the extreme weather. So we don't know the the reason, but probably this related to some of the um, the hormone change and also um, and uh, and also made the people not stable status. They feel very stressful because the temperature. So, uh, because we don't do the laboratory, uh, like the, to in, in animal study or somehow, so we don't know the exact uh, mechanism for that. But that's what uh, we found. <laughs> so we think about based on the animal study, we think this is based uh, probably the biological reason based on the hormone change and other the mold the mold change because we also found the like the um, mold disorders is is significant increase after the extreme weather. Sao Lin is a professor in the School of Public Health at the University at Albany. Professor, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jim. That's the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis speaking with Sao Lin, senior author of the study and professor at UAlbany School of Public Health. That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2237. Or just listen online, wamc.org, or schedule a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.